Have you ever experienced a time when you felt absolutely stuck and didn't know what to do? Have you ever felt like God didn't care about what's going on in your life? Like he wasn't watching or concerned anymore? Has it ever felt like forces outside of your control are guiding your life and there's nothing that you can do about it? And it seems like they have the upper hand. If you do, and if you have felt that way, then you're in good company with David in Psalm 13. David is on the verge of total despair in the psalm. He's at his wit's end. His patience with God has been pushed to the breaking point. He's had enough. There's nothing he can do. His heart is vexed. And he's afraid. The enemy is at the doorstep. And where is God? Why won't he answer? But unlike worldly sorrow, which has no real basis in hope, David's hope remains steadfast with God. And even though God feels absent, like he's not even listening, David knows that salvation is coming and that God will not abandon him in the end. So what a contrast David's lament is to worldly sorrow. Matthew Henry, the well-known 17th century Presbyterian minister, calls Psalm 13, the deserted soul's case and cure. The deserted soul's case and cure. The Puritans were so good at penning phrases. The deserted soul's case and cure. Psalm 13 gives us as Christians a biblical foundation for expressing our grief in a way that is both godly and faith-building. God actually gives us permission to grieve and to complain and to cry out for him, say, where are you? That's actually a healthy part of the Christian life. Psalm 13 gives us this foundation for expressing grief and frustration with God that's not only healthy, but it also ends with hope and healing for our souls. A way of grief that actually ends in our souls being healed. And David's going to teach us about that in the psalm. Psalm 13 is a lament. And the book of Psalms, as you know, as we're working through this series already, is filled with many laments. But Psalm 13 is special. Scholars regard Psalm 13 as a prime example of individual lament or an individual cry for help. And what makes it so special is that it's short and sweet. It contains just the very heart of what a lament psalm is. At the, it contains the three basic components and doesn't add anything else. So it's the kind of textbook example of what biblical grief looks like. And we're going to see this morning, as we study Psalm 13, we're going to discover the three basic components of Christian grief or Christian lament. And that is complaint, petition, and trust. 
complaint, petition, and trust. And it shows us how we can move then in that process from despair to hope. So that's the pathway that we're going to walk with David this morning from despair to hope. Martin Luther famously said that hope despairs and yet despair hopes. And in Psalm 13, we discover the soul's pathway from despair to hope. So we'll look at this psalm in three parts this morning. The first thing we will see is that the pathway to hope starts with complaint. The pathway to hope starts with complaint, not what you would expect, I think. The psalmist shows us that the pathway to hope starts with complaint. We'll see this in verses 1 and 2. The consummate optimist, you know, the person that always sees everything positively, in my opinion, has no sense of reality whatsoever. If we consider the promises of God for his people and then look out upon the world, we can readily see that there are real problems in the real world in which we live. Things are not as they should be. Consider, for example, the Hindu persecution of Christians in the state of Manipur in India, which we've read about in the news recently. The Christian news publication Christianity Today documented Hindu persecution of Christians that recently killed six and burned down 25 churches back in May. That a mob of Hindus swept through the Christian districts, killing and burning. And this wasn't something that happened thousands of years ago. That was in May. More recently, the UK-based news outlet, The Telegraph, reported the horrifying news of a Hindu mob that stripped two Christian women naked and paraded them down the streets before gang-raping one of them. Horrific. And that happened in recent weeks. It's not something that happened hundreds of years ago. When you look upon the evil and violence that assaults God's world and God's people, any feeling person among us cries out, How long? How long, O Lord? How long will you let the tyranny of evil reign on this earth and over your people. As the anointed representative of God's people, David gives voice to the same grief that we as Christians feel today. When he says in these opening verses, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? As we study this lament this morning in these opening verses, we see that David's complaint is rooted in three causes. David's complaint is rooted in three causes. First, God's long-standing absence. David feels abandoned by God. I mean, where is he? He's supposed to be representing God on earth. And it's as if God has disappeared. 
David feels forgotten and that God has deliberately hidden his face from him. This fourfold repetition of how long emphasizes the long-standing sense of abandonment that David has felt. This is not just kind of one day he woke up and felt distant from God, but we're talking weeks and months, maybe even longer. God, why? where are you? Why won't you answer me? How long are you going to hide from me? Maybe some of you have felt that way too. In the Old Testament, the typical reason for God hiding his face is due to sin. Right? It's because Israel did something or someone did something that God hides him, himself from them. But in this psalm, we don't get any of those uh, regular indications to see that this has anything to do with, for example, David's sin. His feeling of abandonment does not appear to be related to any particular transgression. So there's no confession of sin, repentance, or contrition here to connect God's absence to some particular sin of David's. Indeed, in light of this absence, David's complaint appears to be one of divine neglect. The question that David's wrestling with is, God become an absentee father? Has God become the father who's been distracted by other things and pays no notice to his own children? Second, David roots his complaint in existential vexation. In other words, kind of an internal turmoil of not knowing what to do, of just personally feeling stuck. As a result of God's apparent abandonment, no one is left to talk with David but himself. All David has left to talk to is himself. He's on his own. David says in verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart heart all the day? The only thing he's left with is this haunting sense of his own sorrow with nothing, no place to go to deal with it. David is asking himself, how long will I be in adversity all on my own? How long am I going to deal with this pain and these problems Myself. Some sort of serious crisis is threatening David. We don't know what it is, but he feels the fear of isolation from any kind of wise counsel. And he's at his own wit's end. He doesn't know what to do with this adversity. Augustine writes, There is no need of counsel, but in adversity. Therefore, how long shall I place counsel in my soul? Is as if it were said, How long shall I be in adversity? The hiding of God's face, one commentator writes, is an anthropomorphic expression for alienation and curse. The shining of God's face signifies blessing. In other words, this this, uh, 
this is a kind of a big term. You may or may not have heard it before, but anthropomorphism. It's uh, literally from the Greek, the form of man. God will sometimes describe himself or the biblical writers will describe God as if he had the form of a man. God is spirit, of course, so God does not have hands and feet and eyes. But the psalmist will use human language to describe how they're feeling with God. And typically when God hides his face, and leaves people alone. It's a sign of alienation and curse. And when God shows his face and shines his face upon his people, it signifies blessing. So, for example, Aaron's blessing in number six, a blessing that covenant families would give to their children generation after generation, reads, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But David is not experiencing covenant blessings right now. He's experiencing what feels like covenant cursing, and to his mind, for no apparent reason. His heart is vexed because the blessing of peace is the exact opposite of his feelings at present. God has turned off the lights and he's left alone in the darkness with himself. Meanwhile, David's current companion is sorrow all the day long. If God is with him, where are his promised covenant blessings? The third cause of David's complaint is the pride of his enemy. The pride of of his enemy. He says in the second half of verse 2, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Not knowing the context, we at least know that whatever the trouble is, David's enemies think they're getting the upper hand and they're boasting about it. Whatever the Christ, it is critical to remember who David is. David is God's anointed king, and as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. In other words, the enemy's hatred of David extends to God's people under his care. And they are boasting over the people of God as they boast over David. But why did people hate David? And the question extends, why do people Hate us as God's people. John Collins points out that the enemy hates God's people because of God's covenant. He writes, Since the Psalms presuppose that their singers are faithful to the covenant, readers may safely assume that the enemy hates the singer's faithfulness. The reason, the ultimate reason that the enemy hated David, that the enemy hated God's people then and now, is because God's people strive to be faithful to the Lord. And that allegiance to the Lord is treachery to the devil. That allegiance to the Lord is treachery to the world and to the leaders of the world that say, worship me, fear me. And when we fear God, 
the enemy hates it because it's treason in the kingdom of Satan, in the kingdom of darkness. And like our poor Christian sisters in Manipur, who were brutalized by the Hindu mob, the enemies of God hate us simply because we belong to him. And so it was with David and the nation of Israel. We have ample cause to grieve because our boastful enemy often, even today, seems to be winning the battle. And so we cry out, how long, O Lord? Will you forget us forever? But amid this grief, we must avoid a common temptation that befalls us when, and I'm sure that each one of us has gone through a long season where we have felt distant from God, or that, more rather, God has been distant from us. And we need to avoid a common temptation if you find yourself in such a season. Matthew Henry writes, Long afflictions try our patience and often tire it. It is a common temptation when trouble lasts long to think it will last always. Despondency then turns into despair, and those that have long been without joy begin at last to be without hope. Lord, tell me how long wilt thou hide thy face, and assure me that it shall not be forever, but that thou wilt return at length in mercy to me, and then I shall the more easily bear my present troubles. David's current condition will not always be as it is in the moment. And we shall learn as we work through this psalm that hope is on the other end. So avoid the temptation to think of your current situation as permanent. We've seen that the pathway to hope begins with complaint. Let's now move along in our journey to the next stage of biblical grief. We'll see here number two, the pathway to hope comes through Petition. The pathway to hope comes through petition. We'll see this in verses 3 and 4. After giving vent to his complaints, David begs God for an audience. Follow along with me in verses 3 and 4. David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. David implores God for an audience. He's saying, give me attention, Lord. Hear my prayers. Answer me. Most importantly, David asks God to brighten his eyes. He says in verse 3, light up my eyes. David's face is sullen and his eyes are darkened. What does this mean? What does this poetic language mean? You all know what it means. It means David is morbidly depressed. David is depressed. What do depressed people often look like? Shrunken shoulders. A downcast face are telltale signs. But the distinctive feature is the eyes. 
The old saying is that the eye is the window to the soul. And there is something very true about that. When you compare a depressed man to a joyful man, their eyes couldn't be different. Have you ever noticed that when you look in somebody's eyes and you can see their sorrows written on their face? Or you ever look at someone that might be known as a psychopath, you look at their eyes and there is a, there's a wild, like, absent look in their eyes. The eyes tell so much about a person. Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And in Psalm 13, David feels like the darkness is winning and it's showing in his countenance. He feels that death, as we see here in verses 3 and 4, he feels that death and the enemy's victory are all but guaranteed if God doesn't intercede. He's not doing well. But oh, what a difference God makes. What a difference God makes. David knows it, and he's begging God to intercede praying for God to light up his eyes with his blessing. Uh, Willem van Gemmeren writes, this idiom expresses the effect of God's blessing as God lighting up our face, our eyes. It expresses the effect of God's blessing. People relieved from troubles and blessed with God's protection, peace, and favor show their inner spiritual condition in their outward appearance. Their eyes sparkle with God's grace. On the other hand, the experience of anguish is expressed by the dimness of the eyes. Have you ever experienced someone that's on fire for God? Right? It shows in every fiber of their being. And David wants that again. He wants to feel the freshness of God's blessings and grace and it to be apparent in his countenance. He's praying that he could go away like Hannah from the temple. If we bring our cares and worries to God's throne of grace, we may go away like Hannah and be no longer sad. Do you remember Hannah, Samuel's mother? In 1 Samuel 1, barren Hannah, who couldn't have children. We are told there in 1 Samuel that God closed her womb. God closed her womb so that she couldn't have children. And it was her deepest and bitterest sorrow. And deeply distressed, she made a vow to dedicate her child to the Lord, to do the Nazarite vow if God would give her a son. And in the process of time, God answered her through Eli the priest. Remember what it said in 1 Samuel. Then Eli answered Hannah after she makes this vow, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And he said, Let your servant, and she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. In the midst of David's grief, he's looking for a Hannah moment. He's looking for God to give a fresh countenance to his face and light up his eyes with his grace. And that's what he gets by the end of this psalm. He knows that God will answer his prayer, which leads him to hope. Indeed, God uses our adversity. He uses our struggles for good reasons. In fact, he uses adversity to draw us to closer communion with him and greater dependence on him Because ultimately, he's the only one that can give us what we need. And it would not be loving if he let us try to find our needs met in other places. And so he uses adversity to draw us to him. We've seen that the pathway of hope begins with complaint, with pouring out our grief to God. We've now seen that the pathway to hope comes through petition, crying out to God and asking for him to return. And now thirdly, and finally, we will see in the psalm that the pathway to hope ends with joy. The pathway to hope ends with joy. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. Psalm 13 is characteristic of a life of deep faith a life of deep faith. The believer who has mature faith balances the tension between grief and hope. You know, I said at the beginning that the consummate optimist has no real sense of reality. There are real things to grieve. Jesus himself, who knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, still wept. Jesus grieved. And if Jesus grieved. We certainly have a right to grieve too. But the person of deep and mature faith can balance the tension of grief and hope. To be like Paul who said sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So that we even in grief we don't have to go around sullen and darkened and depressed. Because Our grief is rooted in God who will save. Even in the midst of despair, we can know real joy. We can know real heavenly joy. And that's because of who God is. Despite the tremendous and agonizing experience of grief that David is feeling, where he is crying out, How long will you hide your face from me? David finds hope because he has a deep and abiding faith in God, knowing that God will be faithful to keep his promises to him and to his people. David ends this psalm with hope, saying, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has 
dealt bountifully with me. David is committed to hope. Despite his overwhelming sorrow, David is committed to hope. Look his commitment in these verses. Verse 5, I have trusted. My heart shall rejoice. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord. I have. My heart shall. I will sing. David's deep faith is expressed in his commitment to be joyful despite everything going wrong in his present situation because God is faithful and will bring final deliverance. David's deep faith is expressed in his commitment to be joyful despite everything going wrong around him because God is faithful and will bring final deliverance. Brothers and sisters, hope sings. Hope rejoices in our God who is there. As we consider biblical lament as the pathway to hope, we must not miss this vital point. David shows us that hope is a commitment. You know, there's one thing I think our current generation fears, and that is commitment to anything. It'd be an interesting study to think about why that is. We often are afraid of commitment because of being let down in the past. Or being betrayed. But God is and always will be faithful. And so we can commit ourselves to hope because of our God who is with us. Hope is a commitment, hope is a choice, a choice of faith. Hope is not something that just mystically happens. Where even we as Christians, just we're feeling depressed and just someday we hope that hope will happen. Hope is a faith-fueled commitment to trust God's word. You must teach your heart to hope in God. Other psalms that we'll get to in the course of time will say, Hope in God, my soul. You have to preach hope to your own heart. You must be resolved to have joy come what may. And joy in God is not a pipe dream. It's not a fairy tale story. But it can only come by faith. Therefore, hope is a commitment of faith. Biblical hope is not a fairy tale story or merely wishful thinking. Biblical hope is real because it is based on actual experiences of God's deliverance in the past. Biblical hope is real because it is based on real actual experiences of God's deliverance in the past. David Howard Jr. reminds us that David vows to praise God because of his past experience that God has been good to him 
That is, his confidence in the future is rooted in his experiences of God in the past. David's future condition is based on his experience of God's deliverance in days gone by. Here in the last part of Psalm 13, David shows us that Christian hope works the same way. Brothers and sisters, we cannot fix our eyes on the present. There's nowhere in Scripture where we're called to fix our eyes on the present situation and derive hope there. We must lift our eyes to the throne of grace where Christ is seated at the right hand of our Father in heaven, who has already laid the groundwork for our salvation in the past, in real history. Augustine writes of this commitment to hope when he says, My heart shall exalt in thy salvation, in Christ, in the wisdom of God. I will sing to the Lord, who hath given me good things, spiritual good things, not belonging to man's day. And I will chant to the name of the Lord Most High, that is, I give thanks with joy, and in the most due order employ my body, which is the song of the spiritual soul. Augustine sees singing as the response of faith in our bodies as we choose joy, even in the darkest day. Our bodies are instruments to sing the praises of God, knowing that God has given us spiritual things things that don't pertain to this day in this fallen and fading world. But he's giving us things that will last for eternity. Augustine takes David's hope, as he comments on Psalm 13, and links it to Christ. Because Jesus is, is, Jesus is God's covenant faithfulness to us and to his word. He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. And furthermore, the New Testament promise is that just as he came the first time, so he will come a second to consummate all the promises and to usher us into the new creation, world without end. Brothers and sisters, to experience real, deep, and lasting hope, the kind of hope that changes the way we even look, that makes people ask, why are you so happy? Real and lasting hope only comes after our commitment to respond to God's grace with hope, to believe the promises of God and to base our present and future happiness on what God has already done for us in Christ Jesus. We must say with Augustine, my heart shall. That is my commitment. My heart shall. I pray we as a church can commit. Our hearts shall 
exult in our salvation. We will sing to the Lord who has given us good things, spiritual good things, not belonging to man's day. This is a real hope for our persecuted brothers and sisters worldwide and for us today. Your hope in God through Christ shall never be mislaid because your hope in Christ is based on real history and real facts. Jesus has come and he will come again. Peter, writing to the suffering church of the first century, called them to hope. I wonder if he had Psalm 13 on his mind. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Looking back to what he has done, that's what gives us the living hope. And he's in heaven now. And Peter goes on to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith Notice the connection of hope and faith here. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you have joy, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That is God's definition of lighting up your eyes and letting his face shine upon you. It was the joy of believers, even going to the martyr's stake or facing the gladiator that turned over a wicked empire. It wasn't Christians complaining. And going around sullen and depressed, their joy defied the tyranny of the devil and took down his kingdom grasp on Rome. And brothers and sisters, I know everyone here, we have a heart to see our community and our city and nations changed for the gospel. And it's not going to come through complaining to the world. We can complain to God, lament to God but it's going to come through joy. And the shining faces of God's people filled with inexpressible joy and glory as they taste heaven in the midst of the darkness. So may God fill you with that living hope and that living joy that we have in Christ our Lord. We've seen this morning that Psalm 13 is the the textbook example of biblical lament and how God does not leave us in despair, but gives us a pathway for hope and joy, a pathway to hope. We've seen that it begins with 
giving our real complaints and griefs to the Lord, being real with God. He already knows what we're thinking, so it's futile to just hide it and put on a brave face. That's like putting on a mask. That's not real joy and happiness. We must begin with true grief. Cry out to God. But it doesn't end there. We ask God to help, and we put our hope in him knowing that For whatever reason, he's letting us go through the circumstances that we're going through. It's for his good purposes, and it's not going to stay that way forever. We certainly can cry out, how long, O Lord, as we read about the egregious brutalization of Christian women in India, for example, and of churches being burnt down, or churches being shot up, But we don't stay there. What will transform the community and the city is the hope and the joy that we have in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You remember that John gives a picture, a New Testament picture of how long, of saints grieving. Remember in the book of Revelation, we read it this morning in our New Testament scripture reading. Where John depicts the martyred saints in heaven asking the same question as David in Psalm 13. Remember they said, as John writes, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. John shows us and gives us a window into God's purposes here. God has ordained us to suffer for reasons we don't always understand. It's God's ordination. But John shows us that when the persecution of God's people is complete, he will judge and avenge our blood. David suffered as God's anointed king, and as he suffered, he prefigured Christ's sufferings. As He felt abandoned. He prefigured Christ's feeling of abandonment on the cross. Jesus suffered abandonment to bear our penalty and reconcile us to God. And we suffer for Christ's sake because we bear the world's penalty for identifying with him. But all will be finished one day in God's good time. All of our present sufferings will come to an end in God's appointed time. And our present sufferings, brothers and sisters, cannot compare with the glory to be revealed. So we ask God, how long, O Lord? And he replies, like he did to the saints under the altar, Rest a little longer. Rest in hope a little longer. 
Rest your hope in Christ and experience the joy of heaven even in the darkest valley of the earth. Let's pray.